And I'd like for you to take the word of God, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 15 is where we'll draw our text from this morning. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15, the um, morning's message uh, is uh, probably going to end up being a series because I don't know that uh, I can get it all done in, in one message. And uh, so uh, right now, uh, the title of the message is The Unspeakable Gift, uh, part one, uh, because I'm quite certain that we're going to have to step our way through it over the next few weeks. Um, I mentioned earlier that you know me. I, I like to, I don't like to just preach on this, the account of Christmas or on the Sunday before Christmas or the Sunday after Christmas. Uh, to do that really separates the account of the, of the uh, cradle from the account of the cross. And I think we have more time. We ought to take more time as we step through this. And um, we'll talk about this starting today and then running through really the end of December. Uh, We'll have these messages that are in regard uh, to Christmas. I think um, this year, if the Lord will, if the Lord doesn't change it, uh, the last message that we'll preach the Sunday after Christmas, it's the last Sunday of the year, uh, I think is going to be one that... uh, that we've heard before, but it's a good message. And it's a message titled, The Sorrow of the Cross. And because sometimes we, we forget the fact, um, and it's the story of what happened after Christmas. It's the story after the account of Christmas. And there's a sorrow that's involved with it. And how we ought, it really ties together, I think, the, the story of, the, of Christmas with the story of the cross, and which is so important that we keep those things together. Uh, God sent his son into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And um, he came to die. I mean, that's a fact. That's, that's why Christ came to this earth. And uh, really, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's what we'll talk about this morning. Out of 2 Corinthians 9, verse number 15, just a few short words. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, again, do that work in us which only you can do. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the different ways that you work in our lives. And Lord, if it's going to result in change, it's going to have to be of you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd please, please do that work. I pray that wherever this message goes, that, that, the power, that your power would be behind it and that in front of it and, and all through it, Lord, that lives would be touched and changed because of it. And we're going to count on you. We're going to count on that. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've now gotten through the Thanksgiving holiday and, and uh, now into the, the season of giving. It starts off with a giving of thanks, but then it you know, quickly turns into the giving of gifts. And I was talking to some of the folks before the service. And, and two, I can guarantee you two things happened uh, to me this week. One thing was I ate too much. And the second thing was I spent way too much money. And so uh, those things, and it goes along with the season of thanks and the season of giving and and, uh, and so as we enter into this uh, season of gift giving, by the way, I mentioned earlier that uh, people, I think it was in Sunday school, uh, that people are uh, used to receiving things this time of the year. That's why it's so wonderful to carry these with you. And it doesn't have to be that one. We've got others uh, that share the gospel. Sometimes I find that I'll, I'll say, did I, did I give you one of these? Or somebody will say, I already got one of those. So I'll pull a different one out and say, well, did you get one of these? And it says basically the same thing, but I just like to keep that before people uh, so that they can have, uh, have the gospel and uh, know how to enjoy the, uh, the season like I enjoy it. 
because of the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we, as we enter into this season of thanksgiving, uh, this gift giving rather, uh, let, let us not forget the unspeakable gift that God has given us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we should never separate the account of, the, of, of Christmas from the account of the cross. Now, uh, the unspeakable gift, the Apostle Paul is writing here under the divine inspiration of God. Uh, and he, the unspeakable gift that he is referencing is a miraculous gift. And that's what we're going to look at, what we're going to focus on this morning is the fact that the unspeakable gift is a miraculous gift. Now we know that the Lord Jesus is the self-existent eternal one. Uh, it, it is impossible, and I want to be very clear on this and, and very forthright, uh, so that if somebody hears this, they understand very clearly what it is that I'm saying. It is impossible to be a Christian apart from believing that Jesus is God. It is impossible. You, you might call yourself, uh, you might go to a, what is called a Christian church, or you might belong to something that we call a Christian faith, but if that church or that faith denies that Jesus is God in the flesh, it is impossible uh, to be a Christian, apart from believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, here it is, the name, some names of Christ, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Revelation 19, 13, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it states, His name is called the Word of God. In John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And here it is, the Word was God. In Revelation 1, in verse number 8, Jesus said of himself, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. We also know that Jesus, as God, miraculously came, became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And the Word was made flesh, John 1.14 tells us, and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory, His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Josh and I were out goofing around on Friday, and we stopped on our way home. We stopped uh, to grab a little bite to eat. And uh, so we're in uh, the, uh, the restaurant, the fast food restaurant there. And I was listening. I, you know, of course, everybody's, you know, all the noise from the people and and taking orders and things like that. And in the background, I hear uh, a refrain, a, a part of a, a song that is familiar this time of year. It's uh, from the uh, Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And hear this in a secular environment, right? We're sitting, and, and uh, there's all the commotion going on. It's, it's Black Friday, and, and so the place is pretty full and busy. And, and, and I hear this come loud and clear through the, Speaker system of the restaurant that we're in. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. You know, it seems like there's a concerted effort to remove God in the name of Christ from the public forum. But can I tell you something and encourage you? It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. And here we are in a world that shuns the name of Christ, and yet this time of year, playing openly and plainly 
The deity of Christ being displayed through that song. Mild he lay his glory by. You know what that means? That, mean, that means simply this. God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And in that man's body lived the sinless life. Went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that is what we're talking about this morning. That miraculous gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and God becoming a man. And it's impossible. It is impossible to be a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so with these truths in mind, let us consider this miraculous gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did it come with? Well, number one, it came with a miraculous appearance. Take your uh, Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. And we'll probably become quite familiar with this book of the Bible and, and uh, a few others as we go through this Christmas season. Let's go to the book of Luke and look in the in, uh, book of Luke this morning at the miraculous gift and what it came with. It came with a miraculous appearance. Look at verse number 26 of Luke chapter 1. And the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And so the, the messenger was miraculous. We find in verse number 26, the angel is mentioned, his name's Gabriel, and he's only mentioned a total of four times throughout all of Scripture. Uh, once he uh, was named, when he appeared to, uh, six months earlier to Mary's cousin's husband, a priest by the name of Zecharias in the temple, and announced the birth of Zecharias's son John. 550 years prior to this, uh, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Daniel, and uh, we'll talk more about what, what Gabriel had to tell Daniel. It's a 70 weeks prophecy there in the book of Daniel, and how it coincides with what happened with Christ. But the, the messenger was miraculous. The timing was miraculous. We're going to preach on this message tonight, but it's out of Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. So there's a miraculous messenger. The timing was miraculous. The timing of Gabriel's announcement was in exact accordance with the timeline of Daniel's 70-week prophecy that had been given over 500 years earlier when Gabriel visited Daniel um, before the birth of Christ. So the time was right. We're going to go into that in, in more depth tonight. The time was right religiously. The time was right culturally. The time was right politically. The time was right eternally when God sent forth his son. We'll talk more about that tonight. So the messenger uh, was miraculous. The timing was miraculous. The recipient was miraculous. That young lady that we read of in the book of Luke there, that, that, that virgin, Mary was of the house of David, verse number 27 tells us, meaning that she was a direct descendant of King David that we find in the Old Testament. And by the way, that is, that is another miracle of fulfilled prophecy. You know, what, over 500, 700 years earlier? In Isaiah 9 and verse number 7, the word of God records, of the increase of his kingdom and peace there shall be no end. 
upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so from eternity past, God had everything miraculously prepared for Christ's arrival. The, the timing, the, the recipient, the, uh, the messenger was miraculous. All of this worked together and it fulfilled the prophecies concerning Christ. I think I said on uh, one, well, I think it was Wednesday evening, we talked about uh, the fulfilled prophecies of Christ and that how Christ conservatively, conservatively fulfills 300 Old Testament prophecies. And somebody, some mathematician figured out to fulfill even eight of them, it was one in 10 to the 52nd, 52nd, 57th power. So that's a, that's a 10 with 57 zeros behind it. The odds of somebody being able to even fulfill eight of the Old Testament prophecies fulfilling Christ. And, and here we have Christ who we look at it, we look at, at the record of Christ, and he has fulfilled conservative, conservatively 300 of those prophecies. And it's a miraculous thing. It's a miraculous appearance. Uh, there's a miraculous announcement. We go back to Luke chapter 1 and look at verse number 31. It says, uh, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. There's a compassionate announcement. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. There's not a name like Jesus, is there? Uh, there's uh, uh, Jesus. The, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. It's such a comforting name, isn't it? It's a compassionate name. Uh, God knew the need of mankind. God saw the need of mankind. God was moved with compassion to meet the need of mankind. And so he sent one that was named uh, Jehovah is salvation. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Wages of sin is death. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It was a compassionate announcement. Some have raised the question over the years, and I don't know, perhaps you've heard this question. Maybe you didn't know how to answer it. But they say things like, well, if God loves us so much, why does He send people to hell? My friends, God doesn't send anybody to hell. They're already on their way there. What God did send was His only begotten Son, not to condemn the world. We're condemned already. That's what John 3.18 says. We're condemned already. But God sent forth His Son into the world that, that through Him they might be saved. So it was a compassionate announcement. It was a comforting announcement. Look at verse number 30. It says, fear not. Fear not. You know, can you imagine if God was to send a messenger in our presence this morning? That'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? Us teaching in Sunday school, fear is a poor motivator. It is a motivator. I gave the example of being chased by a, by a barking dog, right? Sometimes fear is a good motivator, but it doesn't sustain us. By the way, God's Word says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And that's why the messenger of God said, Gabriel said, hey, don't be afraid. Fear not. It was a comforting announcement. It's a crowning announcement. Look at verses 31 uh, through 33 uh, with me. Verse number 31 says, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. 
He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So it was a, a crowning announcement. Again, we notice his name. The name is Jesus. means Jehovah is salvation. You know, Jesus is an easy name. Little kids can say the name of Jesus, right? Right? It's an easy name. Just two, what, two syllables? Jesus. Is that Jesus? Okay, yeah. Two syllables. I had to do, go back to third grade for a minute there. Jesus. When our children were just tiny, you know, and they'd be afraid in their dark rooms. And, and sometimes as, as trying to comfort them, I, I would just tell them, well, repeat after me. Say Jesus. And they'd go, Jesus. I'd say Jesus. Jesus. I say Jesus. They go Jesus. It's just such a, a calming, comforting name. But it means Jehovah is salvation. It's an easy name. Um, here, here's some other options, other biblical options for names. Okay, Consider, considering the fact that Jesus' name is an easy name, there's a man in First uh, Chronicles named uh, Tilgath Pilneser. Right? I had to practice that for like a half hour just to be able to stand in the pulpit and say it. Imagine if, if that would have been the announcement. Thou shalt call his name Tilgath Pilneser. I had to write it self-pronouncing text right in my notes there. How about another fellow in Isaiah, a man named Mehir Shalel Hashbaz? I tried to name our youngest son that. Mehir Shalel Hashbaz. That's a lot of syllables, right? But it's an easy name. It's a comforting name. It's an esteemed name. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It's an enduring and eternal name. From Genesis 1, 1 in the beginning, God, to Gen uh, Revelation chapter 22, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all from beginning to end. It's an enduring and an eternal name. When history and those who made it end, the, the name of Christ will, re will remain. That the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's an enduring and an eternal name. It's an exclusive name. Uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be, be saved. Some people like to say, well, we're all on different roads going to the same place. Well, Jesus certainly didn't think that. Matter of fact, uh, uh, not only uh, did uh, the apostles preach that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, we're, they didn't just you know, grab that and pull that up and, and decide that they were the only right ones. They got that from Christ himself in John 14, 6. Jesus thought he was pretty exclusive when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So it is an exclusive name. Notice, along with all of this, his position. Verse uh, number 32 of Luke chapter 1. He shall be great. The word great in this verse, verse is translated from the Greek word megas, or mega. His name shall be great. It means to be assertive of rank, eminent for ability, virtue, authority, and power. It reminds me of what the Word of God says about him in uh, Colossians chapter 1, for uh, he is before all things. By the way, that's an attribute of God. God is always before. He's not bound by time. He just is. In the beginning, God was the only way that God could communicate to our finite minds uh, where this all starts. And yet God has no beginning. 
He has knowing. He's Alpha and Omega. He's eternal. And what it says of Christ there in its context in Colossians 1 verse number 17, He is before. That's an attribute of God. God is always before. God knows the ending from the beginning. God already knows how all of this is going to work out. God already knows what the result will be of everything that is going to take place in our lives. He's a sovereign God. He's an immutable God. He's an omniscient God. He's an omnipresent God. He is before all things. That's an attribute of God that's given to Christ. And by Him, all things consist. He holds it all together. The smartest of scientists can only give you a theory about how, every, how all the atoms stay together in the, little, in the little molecules and things like that as they spin around the protons and the neutrons and the electrons and, and, and they have their theories and their ideas about how all of that works, but they can't really tell you how does it all stay together and the Bible's very clear. By Him, all things consist. He's the glue that sticks it all together. That's Christ. Bible goes on and he is the head of the body of the church. The pastor's not the head of the church. The deacons aren't the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. The, the, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That's a fancy Bible word for unshared supremacy. By the way, if we give him unshared supremacy or not, it's still his. He is. It's not dependent upon us. Verse number 32 in Luke chapter 1. It says this, He shall be called the Son of the Highest. We notice His name. We notice His position. Let's take a look at His rule. Look at His rule. Verses 32 and 33, And the Lord shall give unto Him the throne of His father David, and He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there shall be no end. Now as we've already established earlier, Jesus fulfilled the promises made to David. But note as well, the Word of God says in verse 33, of His kingdom there shall be no end. Reminds me of what the Bible records in Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 15, when the Word of God says, and the seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and forever and forever. By the way, that was uh, uh, what uh, I think inspired uh, Handel, uh, Handel's Messiah, the, the Hallelujah Chorus. You remember that? And he shall reign forever and ever. And the Queen of England, who he wrote it for, stood at the Hallelujah Chorus, and it used to be the national anthem for Baptists. I remember when they'd sang the Hallelujah Chorus when I was, young, when I was a child and a teenager, that when that song was sung, uh, all Christian people would stand because of it, because we recognize. It's, it's almost like standing for the national anthem, that we recognize the sovereign of the universe, and we recognize uh, His rule and His right to rule in our lives because He is God, and He is Lord, and He is King of kings, you know, and He is the captain of our salvation. And so in our text we see a miraculous appearance, a miraculous announcement. Now let's talk about this out of Luke chapter 1, a miraculous act. Now, I think you understand this, but the, the conception of Christ was miraculous. And I want to explain it to you because there's a lot of people out there that have some sick and twisted ideas about how all that worked. And they're just quite frankly weird, you know? So I want to explain something to you I think that you'll agree with. I think that you'll find easy to understand. And uh, uh, first of all, let's talk about this. Mary was a pure recipient. 
She wasn't sinless, but she was pure. Look at verses 27 and 28. To a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and her virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. She was pure, but she wasn't sinless. Uh, She was a virgin. The only word that could be used to describe Mary is the word virgin. Now in uh, the English, God's preserved word for English-speaking people, the King James translation, you will find that word virgin. There's uh, many, 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 many other uh, translations which uh, call her a young maiden. That does a great disservice to the deity of Christ. It attacks the deity of Christ. If you have a Translation like that, I would suggest you get God's preserved word for English-speaking people. But that word virgin is used to describe Mary. That word is exactly what we understand it to mean. I don't have to teach a biology class, right? It means what you understand it to mean. She is a virgin. And verse number 34 helps to confirm this when it says, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Okay? It is what we understand it to mean, and it cannot mean anything but that. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So the birth of God's Son by a virgin, again, is a miracle and a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus could not have been conceived as other human beings are. That is because Jesus is God's Son. And so let's look at the miracle described. Now look at verse number 35. I want to explain this to you in such a way that I think you'll find very easy to understand how a virgin could give birth. Very easy for for us to understand. Verse number 35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now notice that phrase, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. This act was not after the manner of men. And this is where I've heard some really twisted stuff. Sick stuff. Some kind of relationship, you know. Uh, intimate relationship between uh, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And it's just sick and twisted. Matthew 1 and verse number 20 tells us that Joseph contemplated everything that was going on with Mary when he found out what was going on. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. It was different. It came about in a different way. It it happened in a different way. Not after the manner of men and women, but after the manner of God. He said in verse number 35, The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. If we were to go back and look at Genesis 1-1, it would tell us that darkness was upon the face of the earth and the Spirit of God moved across the face of the waters. It was different then. There was something that happened then and there was something that was different now. That, that That God was there and somehow had an interaction uh, with Mary. And we believe, uh, by the way, going talking about the, the, uh, the power or the uh, creation story, 
We believe that God has the power to speak things into existence. You'll find that all through the book of Genesis, don't you? And God said, uh, let it be, and there was. We see it at least uh, six times, right? More than that. God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and there was. Why is it then so hard for us to believe that the power of God could overshadow a human being and speak a word and the existence of life would be created inside of her? God said, let there be, and there was. There's no weird, twisted thing. Why do we, have, why do we overthink that stuff? Well, how can this be? It's like, we're like Nicodemus. We live a lifetime in church and get confronted with stuff like this and try to come up with some rational uh, explanation and, and uh, you know, uh, some apologetic explanation of what the Bible really means here. We just don't take God at His word and realize it's probably more simple than that by, from a God who is not bound by time, space, or matter. And the same God which had the power to speak the world into the universe, into existence, has the power to create life in the womb of a virgin. Hello? Not that hard. Right? God said, let there be. And there was. So God created life in Mary's womb by His word. By God's power, this miracle took place. It wasn't a human, normal human process. It was the miraculous production of a child without a human father. So we make this conclusion. The unspeakable gift of Christ is a miraculous gift. It is the gift of God. It's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For by, for by grace are ye saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Over and over again, we see this thing of the gift, the gift of God, the gift of God throughout the Word of God. So, if this, if Christmas is a gift, if the birth of Christ is a gift, if the, if the account of the cross is a gift, if these things are a gift, the unspeakable gift, how do you unwrap it? Right? What do you do with it? You ever get anything you unwrapped and you didn't know what to do with it? Thanks. What is it? What do we do with this unspeakable gift? This miraculous gift? Well, first of all, believe. Believe that God became a man. If it is impossible, and it is, if it is impossible to be a Christian apart from believing that Jesus is God, what I'm asking you to do is to believe that. I'm not asking you to believe my word. I'm asking you to believe the unchanging word of God, the only fixed point of reference in the universe. You know, you're going to believe. You're going to believe things for one of three reasons. You're going to believe because somebody else told you something. You're going to believe because you've, you've figured it out yourself or you've rationalized it. Or you're going to believe because the word of God says it. Now, the word of men, the word of man changes, does it not? Uh, uh, our, our experience, that ability that, that, or the things that happen in our lives that we help us to figure things out, those things change, don't they? Experience varies. You know, I've, I've had people tell me I saw a bolt of lightning and I, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I don't doubt that somebody saw a bolt of lightning. If they, if they say angels came down and carried me into the presence of God and, and I trusted Christ alone as my Savior, that's great. I don't, I don't doubt that whatsoever. That didn't happen to me. That wasn't my experience. My experience was I grew up in a Christian home, 
and realized that I was a sinner, realized that, that uh, I was in need of a Savior, and I trusted in Christ alone. There weren't any fireworks, there wasn't any lightning bolt, and there weren't any angels to carry me into God's presence. That wasn't my experience. So what I'm telling you is the words of men are not reliable. And I don't care if that's an organized religion or if it's, it's some atheistic or, uh, or agnostic type of person says, oh, there's not a God. You can't prove there is a God. And, and they're basing that upon logic or rationalism or whatever it is. To try. Listen, the words of men change. Experience changes. But there's something that remains unchanged. And even if we think that it's been changed, it hasn't changed because it can't change. It's the Word of God. It doesn't matter what we think. God said it. God said it. God said that he became a man, and in that man's body uh, uh, came to this earth, never ceased to be God. You say, that's impossible. That, that, you, that's like 200%. How can somebody be 100% man and 100% God? I can't explain it to you based on what somebody else has told me, and I can't explain it to you based on my personal experience, but I can tell you what God's Word says. And I can tell you that all that is required uh, to receive this unspeakable gift, the thing that Christ, the, the coming of Christ and the, and the sacrifice of Christ, to receive that gift, the only thing that is required is that you just believe it. I don't understand it, you might say. I need to understand more. No, you don't. You, you, if you understand enough to, to understand that, that uh, the story that I've told this morning, if you understand enough to realize I'm a sinner, if you, under, if you understand enough to realize that the Word of God has said there's a penalty for sin, if you understand what the Word of God says about the, the coming of Christ, how that God commendeth His love toward us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you understand the, the, the maybe just even minutely the connection between the, cro the, uh, the cradle and the cross, the cradle at Christmas and the cross at Calvary, you understand enough. And all that's left for you to do is say, I believe. That's it. And it's taking that, you've heard of the mustard seed of faith, right? Everybody loves that passage of Scripture. All of you had faith as a size of a grain of mustard seed. Listen, everybody focuses on, on this, on that grain, when the real principle is you need to plant that faith somewhere so it can grow. And most people, most people are content to walk through their life with a, with a mustard size, uh, a grain of mustard seed, size of faith. And all along, the principle that God's tried to teach us through His Word was plant that thing somewhere. And where you plant it is right here in the unchanging, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And just saying, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but as much faith as I have, this little seed of faith, I plant it right here. Because it doesn't change. And you, some people plant that grain of mustard, that, that faith that's a size of a grain of mustard seed, they plant it in what other people say. They plant it in religion. They plant it in experience, and it never grows. It doesn't do anything there. But when they plant that faith that is the size of a grain of mustard seed, when they say, you know what? I don't understand it all, but I'm, I'm putting my trust right here. If God said it, I believe it, period. If you don't believe it, it doesn't change it. If God said it, I believe it. God said Jesus is God in the flesh. He is, he is co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal in power, authority, and every other attribute of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. 
And whether you understand all those words, you understand all those concepts, you can trust the Word of God because it doesn't change. And you place your, your trust there. See, biblical faith is comprised of knowledge. You've heard some things today. You may have grown in knowledge. It's comprised of conviction. When you look at verses like, for all have sinned, you realize, yeah, that's me. You see, biblical faith is knowledge, conviction, but there's a third part to it, and it's trust. Without trust, it's not biblical faith. It's blind faith without trust. It is. You're trusting in, if, you don't, if you're not trusting in the Word of God, you're trusting in something that cannot be verified. All the way around. It'll change. So we plant that trust in the Word of God, and God's Word says Jesus is God. And it is impossible to be a Christian apart from believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that, that he came to this earth, that he lived a sinless life, he shed his blood on the cross to pay for your sin and for my sin. And those who place their faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone can receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's not works. It's not good looks. It's not a good education. It's not money. It's not anything else. It is Christ alone. Jesus said himself, I'm the way. You're lost, I'm the way. You're hungry, I'm the bread of life. He stood at the dawning of the day and said, I am the light of the world. <laughs> you say, what am I supposed to do with this, this unspeakable gift? Believe it. And next, you say, well, I've already done that. Well, salvation is just the beginning. Sometimes we become so consumed with, listen to me, please. This is for the Christian. Sometimes we become so consumed about doing Christianity that we forget to enjoy being Christian. Isn't that true? Somebody has said, let's put Christ back into Christmas. I say, let's put Christ back into Christian. Everything else will work itself out, won't it? Perhaps we need to do that. You see, how do I how do I put Christ back in my Christianity? Well, how about just taking a few minutes this morning and rededicating yourself to getting to know Jesus better through this holiday season and into the new year? If I had time, I was going to read this, and I do have a few minutes here. It's the bulletin devotion titled, God Sent Forth His Son. Christmas is not just about decorating, listening to seasonal music, making cookies, caroling in the snow, or even celebrating the birth of baby Jesus. It is about the eternal Father, the eternal Son, and the eternal Holy Spirit working in eternity past to bring about the means for a miraculous transformation in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. Often when we Look at the birth of Christ, we stand too far back to experience its dynamic effect. We know the language and go through all the right motions, but little change is demonstrated by it in our lives as we celebrate this special holiday year after year. We agree that the Christmas story is a sweet story, but what real effect does it have in us? There was a fixed point in time when God came into this world in a human body to bleed and die for the sins of all mankind. God's intent was for everybody everywhere to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, and then, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, allow Christ to be formed in them. 
Why is it then that some believers need to be begged to do the things that God wants them to? Christ is truly in their hearts and being formed in their lives, then it seems they would be more eager to comply. The problem is that the average believer thinks God wants to do a great work out there somewhere when the fact is He wants to do a work in them, to transform them into the image of His Son, to work in them, and then work through them to reach others. Our lives are but a vapor. They appear for a little while, then they vanish away. This year, stand a little closer to the Christmas story and allow it to form Christ in you. That's my invitation to you. Those two things, believe, believe what the Bible says about the person of Christ, the passion of Christ. But then this Christmas season, you know, maybe, maybe in this invitation time, I want to encourage you to, to come during an invitation. Just spend time with the Lord. And, and if you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe the prayer would simply be, God, this Christmas, I don't want another year to slip by without the Christmas story having a dynamic effect on my life. And through this season, I might be made more like Christ. Something that simple.